This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And while there are plenty of people who want to arm the police to the teeth and continue their further militarization of law enforcement, as well as the entire culture of the United States, reforming, defunding, and the abolition of police are still, sadly, dissenting opinions in the United States, as witnessed in city officials running on defunding the police, and then, when entering office, suddenly stepping back from that position and even increasing police budgets. Yet we all know there is an epidemic of people being killed by police. In fact, the number of people being killed by police has been growing every year since the 2015 protests against deadly racialized police violence. We also know that the most disproportionate victims of those killings are young black men. One victory for the movement against racialized police violence is the raising of awareness over the last several years. But what if that awareness of young black men being disproportionately killed at the hands of police leads to the killings of other victims of police being obscured, even erased from our understanding of deadly police violence. What if by recognizing one group, we make another group invisible? In a few minutes, returning to the show is scholar and writer Kimberly Crenshaw, the co-author of Hashtag Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence, which she wrote with the Columbia Law School African-American Policy Forum, an organization she co-founded, and where she serves as the executive director. The African-American Policy Forum is a think tank that connects academics, activists, and policymakers to promote efforts to dismantle structural inequality. AAPF promotes frameworks and strategies that address a vision of racial justice that embraces the intersections of race, gender, class, and the array of barriers that empower those who are marginalized in society. AAPF is dedicated to advancing and expanding racial justice, gender equality, and the invisibility of all human rights, both in the U.S. and internationally. You can follow AAPF on Twitter at AAPolicyForum. You can find out more about them at AAPF.org. And please show your support for AAPF at aapf.org slash donate. Kimberly is a professor of law at Columbia Law School and a distinguished professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's a leading authority in the area of civil rights, black feminist legal theory, and race, racism, and the law. Her work has been foundational in two fields of study that have come to be known by terms that she coined, critical race theory and intersectionality, a term she coined to describe the double bind of simultaneous racial and gender prejudice. Her studies, writing, and activism have identified key issues in the perpetuation of inequality, including the school-to-prison pipeline. As we discussed here on This Is Hell in, uh, with the author of the book, Pushed Out, and that would be, again, uh, Monique Morris, excellent interview that we, or excellent guest that we had on the show back in 2018. You should check out that interview as well. Her studies writing and that uh, Kimberly's studies writing and activism have identified uh, these issues in the school to prison pipeline that we discussed with Monique back in 2018 through the APF, which she co-founded with uh, 
sorry, through the AAPF, she published a, a study that she co-authored that she co-authored with Andrea Ritchie, Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women, which documented and drew attention to the killing of black women and girls by police. She's also the co-author of Black Girls Matter, Pushed Out, Over-Policed, and Underprotected, founding coordinator of the Critical Race Theory Workshop and co-editor of Critical Race Theory. Kimberly writes regularly for The New Republic, The Nation, and Ms., and hosts the podcast Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life, which you can follow on Twitter at IMKC underscore podcast. Follow Kimberly on Twitter at Sandy Locks. This is her second appearance on This Is Hell, having been on the show way back in May of 2015 to talk about the then-just-published Say Her Name report for the African American Policy Forum. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth live-streaming radio podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing his Will Ippen. Will, what is new by you, sir? Oh, not a whole lot. I was in Michigan visiting the in-laws for a brief weekend, and I managed to meet up with our very only Sebastian Vupper. Oh, really? Yeah. Dr. Sebastian Vupper, the historian who does the weekly segment, Past Inside the Present, that gives you the... Historical context so you can understand the present. How's he doing? He's well. Um, got to see his place, and uh, he's sitting pretty there in the west end of Grand Rapids. Oh, is that where he ended up, west side? Yep. There you go. That's great to hear. I'm glad that he is enjoying his new Michigander life. Uh, so guess what I'm doing for my birthday? I don't know. I'm... Guessing wisdom teeth? Yes, exactly. I'm treating myself to having an impacted wisdom tooth extracted, (laughs) which is like the ninth or tenth invasive medical procedure I've had in the last year and a half, and I'm not looking forward to it. For whatever reason, dental work is the most frightening of all medical procedures. I had a doctor tell me last year I had a 60-40 chance of surviving a surgery that I was going through, and I did not fear that surgery as much as I fear... Going and seeing the dentist, my dentist said he could not put me under during this extraction, but he could give me nitrous oxide laughing gas if the pain gets intolerable. I know, and it doesn't sound enjoyable in any way. So luckily, Ronaldo, who gives us rotten history every week here on This Is Hell, just went through the same procedure with the exact same dentist as I recommended uh, my dentist to him. And Ronaldo reports there was no pain and the whole thing was no big deal. So during the first week of October, I won't be here. As I am told, I will need to be on an all-liquid diet for a few days, and during that time, I will be in a great deal of pain, according to my dentist. But not so much according to Ronaldo, and I'm going to trust my dentist on this one. That said, my dentist, who uh, also suggested that I will need to take a few days off from the show because it might be a little bit (laughs) difficult to enunciate and pronounce certain words. <laughs> yeah, I'm just <laughs> hearing it now. I know, yeah. exactly. You be doing like full of cotton balls. Exactly, and it's going to sound like Marlon Brando doing The Godfather in my interviews. <laughs> so uh, no new shows during my birthday week, the first week of October. More important than me celebrating my birthday by having a wisdom tooth pulled. Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what can climate change do for you? (laughs) What can climate change do for you? Earlier this week, we mentioned how listener Old Grouch answered this week's question from hell on Patreon. Old Grouch's answer, like one we got last week from listener Nick E on a different question from hell, is so thoughtful that we wanted to share his response in its entirety on its own. So here you go. Again, this week's question from hell, what can climate change do for you? Old Grouch answers by writing, Climate change created the choice of a lifetime, either ended all by heat or by nuclear war. 
Seems there's a lead in the race for nuclear war now in Ukraine. However, this year's or this summer's 120 degree heat index for days on end in New Mexico is running a close second. Good thing I'm old and all the good stuff is over now anyway. I'm so sorry, young folks, that this generation left you such crap to deal with. Good news for scientists at the La Brea Tar Pits is that we now know what happened when temperatures were at today's levels only a few thousand years ago. Wildfires burned off most wildlife habitats, and the big animals died, except for the coyotes. I did not know that. They uh, actually reproduce more under population pressure. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So they're our next overlords. Pretty much, All right. yeah. I'll be feeding coyotes then from now on. But uh, Old Grouch writes, humans survived. They just had to go through a few thousand years of a mini ice age in the northern hemisphere. Good luck with that. I suggest you learn Spanish. Oh, yes, it might be a good idea to remove the razor wire wrapped barrels on the border with Mexico. Old Grouch. So thanks, Old Grouch. We always appreciate your insight and your answers to every week's question from hell. A couple things, though. First, the current competition between the two apocalypses of climate change and war, and which will end the world as we know it. Uh, Old Grouch, you forget about disease, like a virus that goes global, which will likely happen again, if not soon, as deforestation uh, continues around the world and humans are suddenly in contact with a pathogen we know nothing about, and it spreads and turns deadly, while governments and their partners in the private sector trying to figure out how much to charge for the vaccine. As for old Grouch, uh, self-identifying as old and claiming all the good stuff is over now anyway. Uh, look, old Grouch, there's plenty of good stuff going on. Look, I know this is hell, but last week alone here on the show, we discussed how there's a long history of humans living together without police or prisons when we talked with Sharice Morris. We learned from Kelly Hayes and her writing with Mariam Kaba that a social movement is not a clubhouse and we don't have to be friends to organize together. Yesterday we had a conversation with Liza Featherstone in which we discovered how socialists, yes, yeah, socialists, go figure, actually got a law passed in the state of New York that promises to decarbonize the econ- economy while helping workers and allowing the unions to write the legislation. Then there's what we will be talking about today with Kimberly and how we are now saying the names of young black women who were killed by police. Yesterday, when we were speaking with Liza, she mentioned a through line going back to the anti-globalization and free trade protests of the mid to late 90s and early aughts, then through the anti-Iraq war protests, up to the Occupy movement and the social movement around mutual aid in the early years of the pandemic, all the way to the climate change victory in New York last week. We have been witness here on This Is Hell to nearly an entire generation of a movement changing the violence and the cruelty of the state and its political economy. Also, as Liza mentioned yesterday, doomism won't make anything better and will only make people like me more miserable as it has over the last 27 years of doing this show. But old Grouch is spot on that we should all apologize to young folks because we're leaving a bunch of crap behind that now they have to deal with it. And whoever these young folks are, they will likely have to apologize to those younger than them. Who knows? Maybe the next generation or the one after that will finally see that long arc of the moral universe finally bending toward justice. Because in this time of crisis where we find ourselves right now, there are at least signs that we won't take all this cruelty, all this violence, all this destruction of a planet lying down.
Old Grouch, thank you for your very well-thought-out answer. We truly appreciate it. Coming up, say her name. We will also have This Week in Rotten History. Will will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll be telling you everything that's happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And as we will be discussing, the law actually commits the crime we're discussing today. And that is the police killing of young black women, which is, for reasons we will better understand shortly, far too often erased from our collective consciousness in a number of ways, including, believe it or not, shame. Returning to This Is Hell, it's an honor to have back on our show scholar and writer Kimberly Crenshaw, co-author of Say, Hashtag Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Kimberly. Hi, Chuck. It's so good to be back. I'm so sorry to hear about your impending date with doom. <laughs> I know, exactly. I was cringing. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you hate going to the dentist as much as I do? You have no idea I can tell you stories. I truly believe that Dennis did not give children Novocaine. <laughs> it was horrible. It was really come, It's the closest I've come to torture, as, as I would imagine it to be. So you have all of my sympathies. My first dentist, his name was Dr. Phil, and me and my brothers and sister called him <laughs> Phil the Drill. And we could exactly. It was it was terrible. It was awful. It was so it was. At, at the beginning of your book in the prologue, you write it, like the very first sentence. It says, "How does one begin a book on state violence?" Now, the the most quoted guest on our show, probably in the last year, is historian Austin McCoy, who was on to talk about what he called the unassailable relationship between government and the police, especially when it comes to local governments. He was even talking about the local government of the city of Ann Arbor, which is seen as a very progressive town. In light of how, uh, in light of many city leaders across the country promising to rethink, if not defund the police, and then breaking those promises, is the state as it exists today here in the United States, is the state's very existence to any degree dependent upon police violence, because if that's the case, that's a frightening state of affairs we find ourselves in. It is indeed frightening. And I'll just layer into it because I, you know, I write from a particular um, history, a particular context, and that is the context of the United States. So one thing we know about the police, the function of the police in a society that was built upon various racial projects. Enslavement was a racial project. Uh, the genocide and removal of Native, Native Americans was a racial project. Both of those projects, the condition of possibility for the United States as we know it, um, the theft of labor, the theft of reproductive freedom, the theft of land, that depends on coercion. Uh, people just don't give up their children. They don't give up their bodies. They don't give up their labor. They don't give up their land without a coercive institutionalized presence that demands it, that legalizes it, that punishes it when it's not done. Um, and that that project, that culture, and that ideology long, long lives beyond the specific moment that required it. So when we think about police violence, for example, especially police violence against 
people of African descent. It is impossible to grasp it without understanding how Black bodies were initially uh, grasped by and punished by and killed by state power. For us, for this particular history, we cannot think about it solely as a contemporary problem. It is one that has deep historical roots that in many ways has yet to be fully interrupted. That's the really difficult part, it would seem. Without addressing those deep historical roots, can we confront that unassailable relationship between local government and police? Do we need to not only know that history, which a lot of the people on the right don't want us to know, but do we also have to work towards separating the government from the police? Well, this is where, interestingly enough, um, I think uh, the folks who do the work that I do, uh, really thinking hard about the dimensions of history that need to be known in order to fully reshape uh, the the contemporary relationship between police and communities. Uh, We probably have people on the other side who agree with us, which is why they don't want us to teach this history. Um, You cannot change something that you do not fully understand. Uh, You can't address something that you cannot name. And what the right is all about these days, that's what all of the cultural wars are. It's what the attack on 1619 is all about. It's what the attack on critical race theory intersectionality is all about, is is to literally take away our ability to name, to historicize in order to understand. So when they're putting as many resources as they are, and they are, into basically making things unnameable, then we know that naming and historicizing is an important thing for us to fight for. There is no reform if you can't show what the problem is that we're trying to reform. And it's not just a couple of bad apples. It's not just insensitivity. It's not just the lack of body cams. It is the way that certain bodies, certain communities have always been seen um, as 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 bodies that do not fully integrate into uh, the the body politic. Our ideas, our contrast ban, our aspirations are illegitimate, our very presence undermines the safety and the security uh, of those who are seen as the ones who have the primary right to be here. So my my for me, the connector between your question about the state and the police is, can we even talk about this without race and racism being at the center of that conversation? Which seems like that is the intentional project of the right to make sure that that is not part of the conversation. You write, Absolutely. You write, we must say her name. That simple imperative to say her name is more than a political slogan. It is a call to action, a movement that refuses to be silent about the numerous black women the police have killed. How can we go about saying her name, if you will, in a way in which it does not become a political slogan, but a a simple imperative. So it does not become something akin to a catchy line in an ad and into turn it into a command of vital and crucial importance. How can we do that? Because like in our very monetized, marketized, advertised society, even the most important slogans can, or even the most important imperatives can turn into a slogan. Well, Chuck, that's precisely the reason why we decided to publish this book. We were fully aware that many people had perhaps heard of Say Her Name and maybe occasionally uh, go to a 
protest march uh, and um and and repeat that slant uh um that slogan but may not have a sense of the fact that say her name is not just a statement or not just a hashtag it is in fact an imperative that we bear witness there are actions that go along with it amplify that represent what it means to say her name there uh, is a collection of family members that are all about living their lives while they insist on justice for uh, their loved ones there is an imperative to recognize that there are two losses when so many Black women are, are killed. There is the loss of the life that the families mourn. But in addition, there is the loss of that loss. The fact that it has happened uh, has often not been reported in the same way. It hasn't been recognized by uh, various um, elected officials. It they, they, uh, The loss hasn't been the subject of mass demonstration. And the fact of the matter is that this loss on top of the loss um, happens in the face of a reality that um, families of, of mothers and daughters and sisters and aunties don't mourn any less for their lost loved ones than the family members of fathers, sons, and brothers. Yet, because of the way um, uh, racism, anti-Black racism has typically been understood and, and, and especially violence associated with racism has been understood almost as exclusively as a male problem. Um, this level of violence that uh, women face is uh, unrecognized, uh, marginalized. So say her name is not simply a slogan. It is an invitation to broaden our conception of what anti-Black racism actually looks like. What are the conditions under which uh, people are victimized by it, and what are the particular ways that state violence visits itself uh, upon um, uh, women and girls? That's something that we need to be able to bear witness to in order to broaden our movements for transformation. So I don't want to distract from the conversation about racialized police violence against young Black women, but I was thinking about this kind of generally and. Do you think that the same practice of saying her name could also bring about greater attention to the violence and cruelty of poverty, being unhoused, or victims of other state violence like war? Do you think that this same kind of political strategy, without again distracting us from the racialized police violence against young black women, do you think this same kind of strategy could be used in a successful way to address the other kind of violence and cruelties that we see in our everyday society? Well, Chuck, in the same way that oppression, uh, systemic systems of subordination um, are structured and therefore connected, resistance to them um, is also connected. Again, this is the lesson that we're learning from the right. They've gone after all of the ways that we have tried to tell stories, tried to narrate, tried to elevate the connection between various experiences that people have every day. That's why they go after intersectionality. That's why they go after notions of structural inequality. Um, there is a recognition that when people start to see uh, how 
movement against one set of systems actually opens up into the related overlapping intersecting systems, um, that those movements become more powerful. People are better able to articulate what it is that they are facing and why it matters to everyone. I think that we only need to look back at 2020 and understand that the largest movement in American history was the movement that was prompted by the murder of George Floyd. There were protests in all 50 states. It is also the case that a movement of that magnitude with majority um, uh, white people coming out in uh, coalition with people of color, with uh, young people, as well as old people. Um, a, a, a movement like that was deeply, deeply threatening uh, to the social order. So it is not at all surprising that in reaction to that, we have one of the deepest um, politics, political moments of retrenchment um, that that we have had it it in many ways it reminds us of redemption. What happened after Reconstruction? What we're seeing now is everything that has been pulled out of the playbook: suppression of protests, new laws that make it virtually impossible to do what happened in 2020. We have uh, laws against the teaching of these ideas and the teaching of the history that makes these movements uh, possible. And we have laws against political participation, basically an effort to solve the conflict by silencing any voice and any set of demands that reflect that uh, those realities. This is telling us that movements like Say Her Name are, 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 are deeply threatening because they show what needs to be known, what needs to be said in order to disrupt the idea that everything in the end is basically okay and it's all going to work out. It is not going to work out if we don't know, if we can't speak, if we can't say, and if we can't protest. And lastly, if we can't vote in ways that advance different agendas than the ones that dominate in Washington, D.C. today. So that suppression of this uh, of protests by the state, that would very much suggest that the state is very fearful of these protests. You were mentioning the protests after the murder of George Floyd and how they took place in every state in the United States. Back in 2003, in February of 2003, we had the world the world's largest in the history of the world, the largest anti-war protests, the largest protests ever when it comes to the globe and all the protests that were taking place around the world. Still, the Iraq war happened. Still, mm -hmm. we have people who were making promises of defunding the police. They've stepped back from those promises. But the suppression of those protests would suggest that the state does fear these protests. So as people who do protest who see that we end up going to war, who see that we don't end up defunding the police, do they underestimate the power of those protests? Because here you have the state, you know, reacting by trying to suppress those protests. Do we underestimate the power of protest because the Iraq war still happened and police are not being defunded at the rate we are hoping? Yeah, I think what we may underestimate is the sustaining structures that need to take place. I think we also probably underestimate um, all of the 
dimensions of social change that even in our own history uh, happen in order for protests to be translated uh, into change. And we probably underestimate how many protests had to happen across any of the issues we cared about before the ideal circumstance actually occurred so that that uh, on the ground demand for change actually um, channeled its way all the way up to the levers of power to actually create that. You know, the the the, the way that the right wants the civil rights movement to be told, for example, really leans into this undereducation about what's necessary for change. You know, the story is, you know, America was born pretty perfect. It had a few problems. Um, and then we had we we had some laws uh, that fixed it. And those laws were prompted uh, by people of goodwill who decided to you know, have a march on Washington. What they don't tell you uh, is that protests had happened you know, for for decades, what they don't tell you is that there are multiple organizations on the ground. What they don't tell you um, is that uh, all sorts of political leverage had to be used in order to advance some of, of these agendas. And they don't tell you about the level of violent repression uh, of these protests. And in fact, that there was a lot of conflict within the movements because some people were of the belief that um, if 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 the state got angry or if the if the agents of the state were not 100% behind us uh then we needed to find another way we needed to be more accommodationist in our demands so so the reality is that it's a long hard slog and it's not always um, the fact that we can see the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. Sometimes there are lifetimes that go by where it does not bend at all, or at least it doesn't bend in the direction that we want to. But human striving, um, the passion for justice, the refusal to accept the conditions of the life that we have been inherited, that inheriting, that is what is the movement making imperative that drives so many people to try again that drives people to say it's not enough for me to to make a poster i've got to be willing to show up in some way that's beyond a tweet i've got to be willing to remove my consent in all the ways that i can i've got to be willing to figure out with others how to change the equation because the equation that we're in right now just reproduces is the same. So there's no one who really has that um, that formula. Um, it comes from um, trial. It comes from uh, increasing refusal to accept. It comes from uh, unpredicted uh, um, and, and almost who would have thought kind of conditions where unlikely allies come together um, to to make a change. So yes, underestimate because there's so much more that has to happen. Uh, and yes, while we underestimate, we also need to be about the work of making new possibilities happen by trying new things. You, at the beginning of each of the chapters of the book, uh, you share a story of a person who's a mother of somebody who has been killed by police, a young black woman who's been killed by police. And you share the story of Fran Garrett, the mother of Michelle Cousseau, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. who was shot and killed at the hands of the police during a mental health pickup call. 
on August 14, 2014. Fran tells you how she wasn't the life of the party. She was the party and how loved she <laughs> was, a Pied Piper of neighborhood kids. She also says how she was a lesbian and did have mental health issues. She was even going back to school to help those like her. This is a really good person. As her mother describes Michelle Cousseau, She's always worked with these nonprofits helping women with kids, women with HIV, and women facing domestic violence. How often are the black women who die at the hands of police also marginalized in further ways, including sexuality, gender identity, or even based on mental or physical abilities? How often is it not is it the intersectionality, if you will, of this kind of targeting of victims? And this is precisely why uh, Say Her Name elevates these stories so that um, stakeholders, um, witnesses uh, to the losses can can understand the terms of vulnerability, um, understand that that vulnerability uh, is not natural. It's not just there. It's not just the case that uh, people with um, in mental health crises are disproportionately uh, likely to be killed by the police um, or uh, those who are um, uh, genderqueer or who are seen as um, uh, a threat uh, to the police are, are killed by them. Uh, these are these are socially constructed uh, problems. These are uh, encounters that uh, as people find themselves in it, the, the risk to them um, has gotten to them before the police have, because we see these problems as policing problems, as opposed to uh, mental health problems, as opposed to class problems, uh, as opposed to problems of patriarchy and heteronormativity. So when the police arrive, they arrive with an agenda, and the agenda finds its opportunity in those moments, partly I would say because they know and are aware that as society, we back up their claim that they had to do this violence, even when those claims go against common sense. Michelle Cousseau was in her own home. She did not want to come out for a mental health pickup order. It should have been her prerogative not to come out under the conditions that she was confronted with, which was seven police officers. She should have been able to stay in her home after the, the, the police officer who took her life climbed over her gate and encountered her in her own vestibule and shot her through the heart within seconds of the encounter, not because of anything she said, but because the look in her eye told him that he and his six other officers were in danger. This is the grand intersection of all of these isms, the racism, the uh, failure to understand mental health, um, the homophobia, um, and, 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 and the sexism. Seeing in this small Black woman such a threat that taking her life was warranted. These are stories that we need to bear witness to because they tell us about the vulnerability that many of us face. And they tell us about the conditions of that possibility that we have the power to change. We don't have to let police officers simply say, my life is in danger. When objectively, if you look at the circumstances, there are clearly other ways that these particular encounters could be handled that were life affirming 
rather than life denying. And there's also the context of uh, the historical context of Fran Garrett and Michelle Cousseau. Fran describes the events leading up to her daughter's death at the hands of police, how back in the 80s, Fran had lost her uh, son, Michelle's brother. How in his early 20s, he's murdered while bringing a coat to a blind boy who he had been mentoring. How 20 years later, Michelle, who is still feeling the after effects of that killing, is killed by police while Fran is at a hearing for her son's killer when the family had finally decided to support his release from prison. I mean, that's that takes a lot. Fran tells you it didn't have to be that way. This was a mental health call. And they sent eight police officers with guns drawn and dogs in the car. Things were calm at first. First seven officers to arrive at uh, Michelle's house were from our community. They had been talking to Michelle through the security door, having a calm conversation. Then Sergeant Percy Dupra, an officer from another district who was filling in for someone, arrived on the scene. Within six minutes, Michelle was dead. Sergeant Dupra came down upstairs and demanded that they pry open her front door. Then he shot her. He came to do what he came to do. In six minutes, all this happened, and a life was gone. A life was taken, and he took that life. That's Michelle's mother talking. An individual came in and did something nobody else was doing. You mentioned this before, but I just want to drive this point home. Why doesn't the removal of Sergeant Dupra, who's clearly a bad apple, why doesn't removal of bad apples, individuals from the force, lead to an end to police violence? Why does it not seem to end police killings? In this case, was the problem Sergeant Dupra? Yeah, the problem was, was of course, you know, Sergeant Dupra, but it wasn't only Sergeant Dupra. Um, as Fran points out, um, there was a community um uh, policing, the officers who otherwise were there did know uh, Michelle. Uh, and Michelle would probably still be alive had it not been for the fact that uh, Dupra was on duty and was sent there. But where is the accountability for that fact? This is where it becomes institutional. There's a, a shrugging of the shoulders. It's oh, unfortunate. Oh, too bad. But we can't do anything to undermine the authority of the police. So we write it off as a bad apple, which makes it an institutional problem. Uh, Duper was not prosecuted. Uh, he basically uh, was um, reprimanded, uh, lost uh, some privi privileges for a while, but in the end um, is able to retire uh, on uh, his police uh, pension. In the end, able to influence other officers. In the end, uh, able uh, to basically still walk around with the swagger that comes from shooting a five foot two uh, black woman in her own doorway. This is what makes the culture work in the way it does. Shoot first, ask questions later, never take away my authority to make a split second decision. That is what makes it a structural problem. Now I have to say that the inspiration for so much of what we do uh, comes from Fran Garrett. We would not have known about Michelle Cousseau if we had relied on uh, the traditional media. Uh, Michelle was killed five days after Mike Brown, while thousands of people were in the street as they should have been to protest his death. Michelle Cousseau's death 
um, basically went by the wayside until Fran decided to take Michelle's coffin to City Hall. And that is what generated the news. We were then thinking, where are all the other stories like this, where no one did take a coffin to the city hall to say, someone's going to recognize what happened to my daughter. That is when we decided we needed to lift up these names. And Fran was able, because of her her incredible ability to grieve and mourn and demand justice at the same time, to create reforms um, at the Phoenix police level. So now there are trained people who go. Now uh, police are not the first people who answer a 911 call. And there's so many other people's lives who could have been saved if those reforms had been in place in other places where Black women have been killed. We'll get to those reforms in a moment. Uh, Michelle Cusso's mother friend tells you, quote, they think the police think we're angry when we're only attempting to explain ourselves. They accuse us of just being angry black women. That's how we're classified, as just being angry. Then for Sergeant Duper to say he shot my daughter because he was scared of the look in her face, it's just so unreal. Can that fear be trained out of policing so young black women are not killed by police? Because that's always the response if we just get better training. Yeah. It can't be done without acknowledging the fear in society. Um, it can't be done just assuming that most people don't have it and just a few bad apples do. It can't be done unless there are consequences to acting on that fear or ways of hiring people um, to assume um, that, uh, you know, we can just uh, find our way out of it by ignoring it. It is the case that the police are part of the society in which police officers are formed. Police are not a different animal. They're not, you know, there's not something magical that happens when they put on the uniform, except for the fact that the ways in which they enact their biases and the ways in which that institution refuses to acknowledge them generally has the support of 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 the law of the state, uh, so our 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 challenge is 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 manifold. We have to acknowledge that this is part of the society in which we live, and we're at a point right now with say her name that there isn't even that acknowledgement with respect to black women. Um, we're trying to get on first base with this. We're trying to say everything that you think you know about anti blackness in policing applies to people across gender and gender identities. You might think it's just a problem that impacts one part of us. It impacts all of us. And so to the extent that we are we are fighting broadly to understand anti-Blackness in the context of state violence, we're saying it's not broad enough. We've got to do more to lift this up. And then all of the strategies that we're talking about now, how do we uh, retrain thinking about anti-Blackness? What do we do in the interim at recognizing that the state is still empowered to take our lives through their anti-Blackness? How do we connect anti-Blackness with the ways that other people are subject to policing and partly because we realize that the permissive dimension of policing is grounded in anti-Blackness, so other lives are at risk as well. All of that is part 
of the conversation, of the movement that we need to have. We just need to make sure that that work is inclusive of gender and gender identity. Fran tells you that the police chief apologized for the killing of her daughter and asked her what she wanted. She says that everything that I'd asked for, we just about got, except for drug testing of police. I wanted the police tested right after an incident to see if they're under the influence of steroids, but no. Thanks to the union, they fought it, and we didn't get that. We did get more body cams. We got that intervention squad that we requested. And bottom line, after an internal police procedure, Sergeant Percy Dupra was found guilty of violating Michelle's civil rights. What impact does all that have on policing? Body cams are, are good, and intervention squads and procedures holding the officer who killed Michelle Cousseau are all improvements, but what impact does that have on the root causes of police killing black women? Did Fran get whatever she wanted because the efforts, while good and and very well-intended as they are, do not structurally challenge policing? Do the police allow for, in this situation, the body cams, the intervention squads, and procedures holding the officer accountable? Do they allow for those things, but don't allow for things like drug testing, because that's more of a structural issue. And I think the 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 upshot of that particular thing that Fran was demanding and wasn't able to um, achieve in her negotiations with uh, the Phoenix Police Department points to another structural dimension of the problem. And and that, frankly, is police unions. That is not as much a part of the conversation as it absolutely needs to be. Um, and that's a particular challenge, I think, for those of us who um, understand the importance of unions, believe in workers' rights, but do not have a sense of how police unions um, have a mixed legacy. They don't simply descend from, you know, workers' rights uh, histories. They descend from slaveholders' rights uh, interests. They descend from uh, patrollers. They descend from uh, the investment in uh, certain uh, workers to uphold uh, the existing racial order. Uh, so unions have a, a, a very complicated Uh, a legacy, and that plays out in making reforms that might do more uh, than uh, they currently do, virtually impossible. And think about just the reality of the asymmetry, the the different burdens that are attributed to people who are victimized by police violence and those who are doing it. Drug tests on, on, on people who are killed, Uh, or who are um, abused is just routine. We want to be able to tell the story that they were on drugs and this was necessary and not routine with respect to the police. That is a power asymmetry that is structural and it produces precisely these kind of outcomes. Um, So I think one of the things that we may ask ourselves if we demand something and we don't get it, um, what is the good of having had that struggle? 
I think the good of having had that struggle is that it ra- it raises consciousness, awareness, the ability to break the, the mythology uh, around police and unions so that increasing numbers are able to understand that when that uniform is put on, the magic that we allow it to represent is something we give it. Because we don't fully see it for what it is, because we don't historicize it, and therefore we don't challenge it. It's part of the consciousness raising that has to be done to broaden and deepen the movement and the demands for deeper levels of structural reform. We are speaking with scholar and writer Kimberly Crenshaw, co-author of Hashtag Say Her Name, Black Women's Story, Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence, which she wrote with the Columbia Law School African American Policy Forum, an organization she co-founded and where she serves as its executive director. Speaking of that policy forum, you write that the African American Policy Forum's Hashtag Say Her Name campaign began in earnest against the background of the, this profoundly disturbing reality the deaths of black women who were killed by the police barely registered a blip in the national news. Fran Garrett and so many others were grieving and protesting the loss of their loved ones all too often without the support and recognition of their communities, the media, and sometimes even their own families. Something had to change. To you, what explains a lack of family and community support? Why wouldn't everyone and anyone support those those who who uh, want people to know their daughters were killed by police. You even mentioned that there's a sense of shame in these kinds of killings. What yeah. explains yeah. that lack of family and community support? I would just think that everybody would just rally to their cause. Well, on this, I have to uplift the voices of some of the other mothers who tell us that their experience of having lost daughters to police violence uh, puts them in the mind of the way rape culture functions. It is a gendered reaction to the idea, what did your daughter do to put herself in harm's way? We understand that gender, uh, sexism, patriarchy uh, works in particular ways in helping people make sense of bad things that happen. And often it works as a way of shifting blame uh, to uh, to the victim. That's exactly what rape culture does. What were you wearing? What were you doing with him? Where were you going? What were you drinking? How late were you there? These are all ways that people interrogate in a fashion to tell themselves, do I have to worry about this? Was uh, this a bad thing? Was this something that that woman could have presented or prevented? The same set of questions present themselves when women are killed by the police, partly because it's something that folks don't uh, hear daily. They think it is an exceptional uh, situation. So they want to understand how that woman put herself in that situation. And so with uh, Gina Best, for example, uh, her daughter, India Kager, was killed by a Virginia police uh, uh, squad that had followed uh, her daughter and the father of her child for uh, for hours, knew that she was in the car, knew that she was innocent uh, of whatever they thought he was uh, guilty of along with her child, and still she was killed, and still family members and others asked Gina Bess, her grieving mother, what did she do? 
So these are some of the ways that we have to address the intersections of patriarchy and sexism with state violence because they create particular kind of responses, even among those who might otherwise be thought to be available for support. You write the survivors of police violence and family members of victims raised names of black women killed by police. Rekia Boyd, for example, was killed by an off-duty cop who never served a day in prison for firing into a crowd of young black people in Chicago. Is there any evidence that police who kill young black women are any more or less likely to be held accountable than police who kill black men? Is there any inequality in policing being held accountable or that their uh, penalties are any different? Is there an inequality when it comes to holding police accountable who've killed young black men compared to young black women? We've not um, seen any evidence of that in the network of women that we've worked with. And on the rare occasion where there is a civil award, um, we have seen those awards being overturned or or not down. Uh, the problem of police accountability is everywhere, which makes the conviction uh, of George Floyd's murderers, all the more remarkable, all the more exceptional, and obviously all the more concerning for those who do not want police uh, to be held accountable. The one thing that I think is warrants saying about Black women who've been killed and, and the police not being accountable is that um, they are more likely to be killed uh, in, in the company of their children and family members. So the idea that the police officers felt that they had to use lethal force, uh, notwithstanding the danger to others, uh, is all the more available for critical uh, uh, interrogation and hopefully disbelief. If we hold up all of these ways uh, that the police took lives uh, in circumstances that many of most people would not think required lethal force, it may help us see that that is a go-to argument that's used all the time. And we have to have ways of separating uh, police from being able to make this as a justification in virtually every circumstance. You write that in saying their names, we not only challenge the taboo surrounding the public recognition of police murders of black women, but also counter the violence done by the lies, fabrications, and racist and misogynist representations of black women spread by the police and the mainstream media. In this sense, hashtag say her name functions as a critical site of historical recovery in the face of myth and a trenchant disregard for the truth. How much influence do the police and their narratives have over the media? Because we, we often don't recognize the role of the Pentagon in Hollywood blockbusters. Does police propaganda, does copaganda, does it actually directly lead to the killing of black women by police not getting the attention it deserves? Do police myths erase black women who are killed at the hands of police? Well, police myth and uh, the close uh, relationship between the police and mainstream media uh, is obviously a factor in the broader uh, way in which the police often operate with impunity. Uh, the police give the first statement uh, about what happens. Um, the police are able to uh, call uh, the, the victims a suspect. 
Um, that is a projection of their own that actually is an element that led to the encounter in the first place. What those who are victims of police violence don't get to say um, is that the uh, actual law uh, and policy that puts police in the position of disproportionate encounters with uh, certain populations, African-Americans, that got there first. And that is the way that we live our lives. So imagine what um, the media would sound like if the reality of driving while Black was the first frame that uh, readers read. Uh, X was driving down the street, taking their daughter to school and was pulled over by police and ended up being killed rather than the suspect made a U-turn. I mean, these are these are ways in which the initial narrative that the police have to do this to protect, quote unquote, us is constantly rehearsed by the media. And what is erased is the underside of that reality, the cost of a permissive police culture, a permissive legal terrain that allows police to pull over people, to encounter them with minimal justification. That's the way that the traditional stories are not interrupted. And when we don't interrupt that long, long narrative, the the influence of the past, the influence of the police being the protectors against the marauding others, whether they're men, women, or children, continues uninterrupted. The, the, the media are a key site for that continuation and thus a key site for potential interruption in that. Gets back to what Austin McCoy was saying, that it wasn't just an unassailable relationship between police and local government, but also between local uh, local government police and especially, especially local media. You write that mm-hmm. stories that began with a 911 call for help and in the end stolen lives of mothers, daughters, grandmothers and sisters don't fit the available narrative frames for recognizing police violence. So, again, I mean... I don't want to just keep bringing this back to this idea of reform or not, but can the police response to 911 calls at this point in the stage of policing, can they be demilitarized? Can force be taken out of that response? And is that even enough just to take force out of police response? I'd say yes and no. Um, force can be taken out of a police response uh, to nine one one, and um, you know it's it, it that's no longer you know a question. Um, we we've we've seen that. Um, uh, the question really is: Can the permission uh, to uh, use force whenever you see it be taken away? That that I think is. Um, again, the question of political will. Um, it's a question of reimagining what police do. It's a question of imagining what is uh, in the what is in the interests of the public. What does it mean to be uh, an institution that serves the public, all of the public, uh, not the inheritors of the of the smaller publics that saw the police as the only thing that separates them uh, from those that they owned and those that they oppressed. Um, I I am. Um, a um a 
uh, I am committed uh, to the idea of taking leadership uh, on the agendas from those who are most impacted by it. Um, I have broader aspirations uh, about how the state uh, should operate. I have broader ideas uh, about how we go about transforming uh, all of the institutions. Um, and and I and and I I I stand in those ideas. And as uh, a servant of say her name as a servant of the families who are seeking justice. I lift up what it is and what it means to live in this moment in which nothing has happened that actually touches the 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 hurt, the injury, the 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 abject injustice that they have faced, and and committed to lifting up what it is that would touch them what they want to see what when they say they don't want their daughter's deaths to be in vain what would make that so and say her name is about amplifying and providing a platform and a space for their vision of justice for their vision of what policing can look like to take uh the front and center position again this is a movement that isn't doesn't have a how-to book. It isn't telling people how to think. It's a movement that is listening to people, which is the most important thing that I think organizers can do. As was pointed out by Kelly Hayes on our show, Miriam Kaba on our show, Liza Featherstone on our show, Sharice Morris on our show, all recently. That's a really important part of organizing. Scholar and writer Kimberly Crenshaw has been our guest. She is co-author of Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence. You can find out more about her organization the African-American Policy Forum by going to their website, aapf.org. And if you enjoy their work, as I do, please go to aapf.org slash donate and show your support. Kimberly, one last question. And uh, as you know, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And Boy, am I going to hate asking this question. So can I apologize before I even ask? Uh-oh. This is real. <laughs> so there was a time, I mean, 20 years ago, and unfortunately, I've spoken with people who still have this belief. There was this popular mainstream commentators would blame the victims for deadly police violence. That still happens to this day. But the problem was not, uh, you know, the problem with the person being killed was they didn't show enough respect for police. What does that reveal to you about popular mainstream commentators from 20 years ago and the analysis that many still hold today, that the victim in a police killing is the person who caused that killing? It tells us that the inheritance of contemporary policing and our consumption of it draws directly from the history of policing coming out of enslavement. Respect for police is not required uh, except for the idea that the role of the police was to instill in Black populations that were policed that you are a subordinate group. We will not, we will not accept any insubordination in attitude or behavior. And for this failure to abide by that code of conduct, 
you are subject not only to abusive violence, but also death. We have to ask ourselves, how did this get passed on to us? How is the idea that um, insulting a cop is enough justification for us to wash our hands of what that cop does in response? That is not a way in which police all over the world necessarily function, but it does function that way in societies and where there are deep and abiding hierarchies and these hierarchies demand respect as a condition of security. When those two things are linked, we know that we are in a quasi-police state and that the way in which the police expect us to behave is more about pre-existing hierarchies than it is about protecting people against crime uh, or uh, serving the public. It's serving a particular public and a particular social order. And it's time for us to be able to name what that is. I Years ago, I was talking to a beat officer here in Chicago, and I asked him if he was fearful of gangs. And he said no. And he quickly looked at me and said, because the Chicago Police Department is the biggest and strongest is gang a in the city. Exactly. He just said that straight mm-hmm. up to me, not like he was ashamed of it at all. This is like in the mid-90s. And then we've had these conversations with Cerise Castle about the gangs in the Los Angeles County uh, Sheriff's Department. Uh, do you think that is at the core of the problem with policing, that they view themselves as a violent gang? Well, it's certainly the case that those who do see themselves as that are not out of step or are incompatible uh, with, uh, with you know, legitimate uh, institutional uh, uh, functioning of police. I mean, it it takes an an, an incredible and an and an almost unthinkable set of circumstances uh, on those occasions when the function of gangs and police departments have have uh, have surfaced. Uh, there's a lot of hang uh, hand wringing. You know, I lived part of of my time in L.A. and 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 there were uh, moments when it was revealed that there were gangs. There were blue ribbon commissions that were formed in order to root out the problem, and yet almost you know in a cyclical way. Um, within a within a decade, there's another revelation that there's a gang. At least it causes us, anyone who's skeptical about that, to ask what are the conditions under which gang mentality is able to express itself and flourish within our very institutions. That should be at the top of the list of the things that we talk about when we talk about reform or even uh, defunding the police. And it's almost the last thing that people talk about, that our uh, politicians talk about. And until we do, we're not going to be able to grapple with a particular inheritance of gang culture that uh, derives from where policing came from and expresses itself in policing today. I apologize for going over, Kimberly, but I'm, I just love speaking with you. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for being back on our show. I'm going to annoy you for the rest of your life to get you back on the show again. <laughs> well, thanks, Chuck. And, and you get to have me on uh, a little longer because you're going to be 
mute for a while. So <laughs> get it in now while you can. <laughs> Best you. of luck with that. Thank Best you. of luck. Yeah, thank you very much, Kimberly. And just as I was saying prior, uh, so people probably didn't hear it, uh, that's one of the most beautiful laughs I've ever heard in my life. And it's just wonderful to hear it, even when somebody is confronting what she is confronting. I really appreciate you and especially your work. Everybody check out Kimberly's uh, work and check out her uh, by following her on Twitter at Sandy Locks. And this is her second appearance on This Is Hell. Find our past inter- uh, our past conversation with her when she was on the show way back in May not, uh, 2015 to talk about the then just published Say Her Name report for the African-American Policy Forum. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Really appreciate it. And thanks to all of the people who helped us book you on today's show. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell and nowhere. Is that more true than in the relationship between the state and the police who are supposed to serve and protect? I mean, we know the police are obsessed with protecting property rights in a way they clearly are not when it comes to protecting human rights. Just ask any non-white, non-dude you know, non-able-bodied person you know, And they'll more than likely have a story about how police have violated their rights at one time or another, or many times in their lives, persistently, on a regular basis. If you learn something about deadly police violence against black women and the fear cops have that fuels those killings and the impunity that allows them to commit those killings, support completely listener-supported This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast shortly after it, patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. By becoming a Patreon member, not only do you get the bonus weekly Patreon podcast with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, you also get a secret code word that gives you a discount on all This Is Hell merchandise. You now also get first crack at every week's question from hell, as it is first announced on Patreon. And our newest feature, every week, whoever is producing the show chooses a question from hell for me submitted by our Patreon subscribers, a question that I have not read or heard until the producer asks it on the Patreon podcast. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell will please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far this week's question from hell is what can climate change do for you <laughs> and let's see who's chimed in i'm waiting for like a attorney's commercial <laughs> yeah uh, the hammer you know what the hammer right. can do for you in climate change <laughs> yeah where are those uh, sleazy class action lawsuits right ambulance yeah. chasing mm-hmm. climate attorneys That's 2 a.m ads yeah. on uh network tv channels exactly yep right scrolling scroll there great phone numbers like 222 oh man they uh those guys have a or at least recently put up a billboard uh, up in Rogers Park. Uh, yes, and there's another different group exactly like them in Indiana, and then there's a different group with the exact same billboard in Michigan. Yep. Those people are, that's a franchise right there. Yep, they got that memorable phone number. <laughs> All right, so responses on Facebook to the question, what can climate change do for you? Uh, kicking it off is... Who is kicking it off? Sorry, internet's being slow today. Neil C. <laughs> S'mores. S'mores? <laughs> wow. I love it. Wow, uh, that's good. That's very good. Uh, Anthony C. Kill all the ocean life until only jellyfish remain. 
But sadly, since most politicians are squishy, moldable, and without a brain, heart, or backbone in the U.S., um, the U.S. government will probably make it out relatively intact. <laughs> okay. Ooh. All right. Uh, so we have to start eating jellyfish. Uh, Jeff Dorchin responds, Turn Michigan into a tropical paradise full of delicious megafauna. <laughs> <laughs> that does not sound like that's going to end well. Can have another megafauna mass extinction. Um, Doug M. Oh, that's just a reply to Jeffy. Um, okay, Fabio L. Replies, Remove the Arctic permafrost so that all those cloned extinct mammoths and smilodons hatched in 2035 die instantly, <laughs> wasting billions in private equity funding for the genetic manipulation industry and crashing the entire copyrighted DNA system. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I'm filing wow. that one away. Wow. Who uh, was that, Fabio? That was Fabio. <sighs> wow. Uh, Borky B, permanent... Reconstruction, and the re is in parentheses. I see. All right. Uh, David Z responds, think of all the great retro disco infernos in Nunavut. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Braden S responds, uh, appreciate the good days and more, and in parentheses, and bring the beach closer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's Facebook. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, at the Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page, at Twitter, on Patreon, on Discord. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer to this week's question from hell. At the end of tomorrow, by the end of tomorrow's show, because we will be announcing that this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. Will, what's Jeff doing on the Moment of Truth again? Jeff lets you know what you can expect from your Dem friends throughout the coming year. It's time for nasty, gnarly. That sounds terrible. That sounds absolutely yeah. awful. I, I don't want to know what's going to happen in the next year with all my Democratic Party friends because. I'm going to experience it anyway. Uh, That sounds awful. Can't wait. It's exactly. Just keep voting blue, and the arc of history is just going to bend towards justice somehow. Sure. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On September 18th, 1970, 53 years ago this week, Jimi Hendrix, who revolutionized the role of electric guitar in rock music, was found dead in room 507 at the Samarkand Hotel in London, where he had been staying for a couple of weeks. Quick aside, Samarkand is a city in Uzbekistan that has some of the most stunning Islamic architecture in the world. Look up S-A-M-A-R-K-A-N-D and then look, look at images on any search engine. It is absolutely wonderful architecture. On the other hand, London's Samarkand Hotel has the deadly stench of English heritage and sits like a tombstone to the slavery and many colonial genocides that built the British Empire. Counts of Jimi Hendrix last hours at the Samarkand vary, but it's known that Hendrix had been under great stress due to problems in his professional career and his personal life. An autopsy found an overdose of barbiturates, which had caused him to fall unconscious and suffocate on his own vomit. I mean, it kind of makes sense that if you're stressed out, you take downers, sleeping pills, so you don't have to face all of the stress. And I'm certain that Hendrix's issues were far worse than any stress I've 
ever experienced in my life, in my so-called career and personal life. But I know if I take something to sleep so I don't have to deal with the stress stress for maybe six, eight, ten hours, I'm absolutely certain that stress will be waiting there in the morning when I wake up. So as a public service announcement from your friends here at This Is Hell, if you're stressed out, do not take any of the brand name downers like Amitol, Secanol, Butasol, Nembutal, Estric, Fioracet, Fioranol Ascomp, Fortabs, or Donatol, which actually contains Belladonna. And as any Dungeons and Dragons nerd knows, Belladonna can keep werewolves at bay and cure the disease that causes one to become a werewolf, lycanthropy. So, not only will you be down, you will be protected from lycanthropy. At the time of his death, Hendrix had been recording a double album to be called The First Rays of the New Rising Sun. Various tracks from the unfinished project were later released on posthumous albums, including The City of Love, Rainbow Bridge, and War Heroes. Hendrix had also been making acoustic demos of new songs for yet another album to be called Black Gold. Those recordings remain unreleased to this day. So Black Gold was going to be a departure from Hendrix, uh, a departure from the way his music had gone in the past. And he saw the whole project uh, as music that would be accompanied by a cartoon about a black rock star. It was going to be 40-some minutes. There are believed to be 19 songs on Black Gold, but only one has ever been released called Suddenly November Morning which was on an anthology of Hendrix's music that was released by his estate in 2010 called West Coast Seattle Boy. You can find the very rough recording of Suddenly November Morning easily online if you are interested in hearing some Hendrix you may have never heard before. Also in Rotten History, on September 22, 1934, 89 years ago this week, at the Gressford Colliery, and Colliery means coal mine, and this is rotten history, so this will not end well. At the Gresford Colliery near the town of Wrexham in Wales, about 500 men were working underground in the coal mine when, at a little after 2 a.m., one of the mine shafts was ripped apart by a massive explosion, immediately followed by fire. All miners were ordered to get up to the surface as fast as possible, naturally, but in the part of the mine directly affected by the fire were about half the miners were working, only six men were able to make it out. The rest had their route to the surface blocked by fire, smoke, and rubble. In the hours and days that followed, as the first explosion was followed by several others, groups of volunteers went down into the mine with firefighting equipment to try to put out the blaze. Some of them brought down ponies, as in those days the animals were commonly used to pull coal wagons inside the mines, and were even stabled underground, where... The ponies' lifespans were dramatically shortened by a 24-7 subterranean existence. As explosions and fire multiplied, and as the underground air grew more poisonous, it became obvious that there was no hope for men in the blocked-off sections of the mine. And even after several more months, only 11 bodies were recovered, including those of three rescue workers. Further recovery efforts were deemed too dangerous, so the mine was permanently sealed became a mass grave with 254 dead miners left underground. 
an inquiry would later find that you guessed it pressure by the main the or the mine owners to increase coal production had led to as they always do severe shortcuts in safety practices including inadequate ventilation that allowed flammable gases to accumulate in the mine shafts which makes you wonder what's so damn great about coal that makes the republican party and democrats too drool over such a deadly polluting fuel with a long history of deadly exploitation by wealthy profiteers who don't give a damn about their workers. Finally, in Rotten History, on September 23rd, 1999, 24 years ago this week, a robotic U.S. spacecraft known as the Mars Climate Orbiter arrived at the planet Mars, naturally, after a journey from Earth landing more than, or lasting more than nine months. Engineers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, a NASA subsidiary known for robotic space exploration, were ready to get the spacecraft into orbit around Mars so that it could begin studying the planet's atmosphere. Some ground controllers noticed that it was slightly off course, though they didn't expect any major problem. But after the orbiter passed behind the planet, they, wanted, they waited in vain for it to reappear on the other side. It was never heard from or seen again. A data review soon revealed that while engineers, geniuses that they are at jet propulsion laboratories, were sending it commands using metric units, the contractor that actually built the thing, Lockheed Martin, had used U.S. customary units based on the British imperial system and had failed to make the necessary metric conversion in a crucial component before delivering the hardware to NASA. This oversight caused the $125 million spacecraft to miss its intended orbit and fall into the Martian atmosphere. No worries, Lockheed Martin is still very much in business thanks to U.S. government contracts that continue to this day. So you can rest easy that Lockheed Martin was never held accountable. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Will, who is coming up as our next guest here on This is Hell? Upcoming guest is Intercept reporter Alice Sperry, who will be on to discuss an article that will not be posted until Tuesday. Uh, her... And now it's not going to be posted till Thursday or Friday. Okay. All right. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's Some the world thing, of are... uh, writing and deadlines. Yeah. Things are being slowed down over there because of the content of her article. What is she writing about? Uh, in her writing, Alice reports on the challenges facing the survivors of sexual violence by Russian troops and how they are exacerbated by Ukraine's treatment of suspected collaborators, mm. including new harsh collaboration legislation, which bars Ukrainians from sharing information with enemies of the state. Alice writes about U.S. foreign policy, abuses by military and security forces, and the repression of dissent. She has reported from Ukraine, Palestine, Haiti, El Salvador, Colombia, and across the United States. So this is a frontline witness reporting of what is happening in Ukraine, and it's freaking awful what is happening to women, as always happens to women during wartime. So this story is being delayed. We don't know why we were told originally that she was going to be on the show today uh, because the story was going to be released today. We had to delay her one week because of Kimberly Crenshaw being, or one day because we, of Kimberly Crenshaw uh, working out her schedule so she could be on today's show. 
We are hoping that we will be able to talk to Alice on either Thursday or Friday. So if you are listening to the live stream or you listen to the podcast, look for our next show to be on either Thursday or Friday. However, we are still going to have the Patreon podcast this Thursday. So write all that down in your calendar if you want to. And of course, we will have Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>